Welcome to the Royal Geographical Society with IBG Ask the Geographer podcast series. I'm Laura and in each episode we'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. In this episode, we're speaking to Dr Ingrid Medby, lecturer in political geography at Oxford Brookes University. In this podcast, we explore the topic of our Young Geographer of the Year and Rex Walford Award 2018 competition, What Makes the Arctic Unique? We discuss geopolitics, global governance, place identity, and the changing landscape of this unique region. What makes the Arctic unique? As a region of the world, I think perhaps what it's most famous for is its flora and fauna and environment. I think that's why it's now also attracting so much attention because of that. And of course, we'll all, we've all seen those pictures of polar bears and disappearing sea ice. And there is nowhere else in the world you would you would get that. The second thing that I find interesting about the Arctic is how it's governed. It's, of course, a, an inter interstate region. Uh, which means the state have to collaborate and work together. But rather than the kind of conflict that we might see in other parts of the world, the unique thing about the Arctic is actually how well those international systems of law have worked and how well states that might otherwise have you know, disagreements, how well they work together in the Arctic and especially negotiations within the Arctic Council. And thirdly, the Arctic Council and, and more generally the politics of the Arctic region is unique in the way that they have included indigenous peoples in, in those arrangements. There's still much to be done, but I think it's one of the, the places in the world where actually the indigenous peoples in the region do have a say and, and can influence the politics that will, of course, affect them in the end. Would you describe the Arctic as an area of flux, both environmentally and geopolitically? Yes, and I think the the second follows the first, right? So it is changing environmentally. Of course, the, the whole world is experiencing climate change, but in the Arctic, it's much more stark. You can see it more clearly. You can see it with your the bare eye, um, especially the disappearing sea ice is a clear indicator of that, not just decreasing sea ice extension, but also the thickness of it and, and how old the ice is and so on. Because of those environmental changes, the geopolitics of the region as well have been changing. There's suddenly become a much stronger need for governance arrangements, for working together. I think the one thing about that we know about climate change is it really highlights how we can't work or think within state borders. This is a problem that really transcends any kind of borders. And so the Arctic has become a a region where, where states have really come face to face with that. But like I mentioned before, one of the nice things about the Arctic is how well those intergovernmental talks, collaborations have actually worked. So the geopolitical changes that we are seeing in the Arctic could potentially provide maybe a framework or a blueprint that could be useful also elsewhere. It allows state representatives or local representatives, indigenous people's representatives to work together there and maybe there are lessons to be learned. So how is this region governed and how does this governance vary at a national scale? You mentioned Arctic states there. Who are those? So there are eight Arctic states and they they each govern their 
part of the Arctic. The eight states are Norway, Iceland and Canada, Sweden, Finland, Denmark with Greenland, the US and Russia. Like I said, they have you know, their own sovereignty and so on. But they also collaborate within the Arctic Council, which is an intergovernmental forum. That means that the Arctic Council doesn't have any decision-making power at all as a council, but it brings together foreign ministers, it brings together what are called senior Arctic officials from each state, and six indigenous peoples' organizations as well come together there. And there are also six working groups in the Arctic Council, and they provide, for example, scientific input, and they provide other avenues for, for discussion. That's the kind of international scale of it, I guess. But the Arctic, of course, is actually mainly ocean. So we have a little bit of Arctic land north of the Arctic Circle, if that's the definition you use in this in the, these eight states. But most of the Arctic region is oceanic. And that means that it's the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is often shortened to UNCLOS, that is the framework for deciding who has responsibility, who has rights, where. And that's a little bit too complicated to go deeply into, but basically it depends on how far from the shore you are, how much jurisdiction you have. And for example, the continental shelves would be what goes out the furthest. There, each state doesn't have any particular rights to the water above it, but then we're talking about the, the subsea. How do the imagined futures of the Arctic, so thinking, for example, about the impact of climate change, shape the governance of this region? All the current politics we're seeing in the Arctic, it's, it's, all of that is very future-oriented. It's preparing and planning for the changes that we are now seeing, but also that we know are yet to come. There's, a, unfortunately, a sort of acceleration process with climate change, where that we know that when one thing is affected, whether that is sea ice or flora and fauna, it will then have knock-on effects. So we can... You know, we can predict some of those changes that we know are going to happen. So at the moment, the Arctic states are preparing for that, but also local communities. And in addition to that, I think it's important to mention that there's a number of non-Arctic states and other stakeholders that also have very strong interests in the region. Because as I mentioned in relation to climate change, these aren't issues that can can be confined to to borders or to latitudes. The kind of changes that we'll see in temperatures, for example, in the Arctic, will have knock-on effects also much further south than the Arctic Circle. So coming back to the previous question about governance arrangements, the Arctic Council also allows other states and stakeholders to observe meetings and to participate in working groups. So the UK, for example, is an observer to the Arctic Council and they provide a lot of scientific input. They're very active in working groups and they have lots of expertise. And we know that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay there. I mean, there was the example last year, wasn't it, of the so-called beasts from the east and how that affected the weather here in the UK. But countries like Singapore are also involved in the Arctic Council because the potential sea level change that could come if we saw melting of the, for example, the Greenlandic ice sheet, so, so not sea ice, but the ice sheet, could be catastrophic for countries that are really far from the Arctic. The views of the future are hugely important. Arctic 
peoples and countries and so on, they often talk about their Arctic histories and histories of exploration. But even that is often done leading up to talking about how that then informs politics today and for what, what will happen later on. So the Arctic is a special landscape then of global significance, but thinking more on the local scale, how is Arctic identity varied between different Arctic states and the people who live there? Arctic identities, if we're talking state level, is always articulated through national identities. So what it means to be Arctic would link to what it might mean to be Norwegian or what it might mean to be Canadian. So often what was before talked about as northern identities might now be articulated as as Arctic identities. But then, of course, within each of these states is actually only a part of them that are north of the Arctic Circle. So there you often see people having perhaps a, a stronger tie to that that title, the Arctic. In some ways, it might also be a new label. I certainly know from my own experience in Norway that no one really used to talk about Northern Norway as Arctic Norway up until maybe 10 years ago. And now it's become a a label that you see everywhere. The term Arctic identity, I think, is a new thing. But it definitely connects to narratives of self, national histories or local histories, traditional cultures, all of those things. So they're unique um, among countries, between countries, but also within countries. You can go from one town to the other and and there's a slightly different sense of what it means to be from there. This is the whole idea of sense of place and perhaps how we think about the Arctic can be quite different. It doesn't mean only one thing. Certainly the European Arctic is very different from the North American Arctic and that has implications also for how people live today and how they have lived and how they want to live in the future. I think one of the interesting things now is is looking at how that history is commemorated, remembered, celebrated and when that also is done in the context of politics. What does it mean to celebrate polar explorers? How is that used in geopolitical speeches? What does it tell us about how people want to be seen, but perhaps also how they want to see themselves. What are the characteristics that are emphasized as being an Arctic characteristic? How does being part of the Arctic impact local and national place identity, um, looking specifically at Norway, where some of your research has taken place? It wasn't really up until very recently that it started being articulated as an Arctic identity. People would rather talk about a northern identity or if you're indigenous, a Sami identity. In some ways, an Arctic identity is is uh, is derived from more international terminology. This sense of the North and the Arctic and the idea of the winter landscapes and the snow and the ice, that was used also during the the nationalist movement in Norway when Norway was trying to get independence, first from Denmark, where they got their constitution in 1814 and then from Sweden in 1905, full independence. It was really important then for them to emphasize how Norwegians were this and that way as opposed to the Danes or the Swedes who were different or had different traditions or different cultures. And so the the idea of the northern wilderness and the hardship of that was very symbolically important. And I think Today as well, emphasizing what makes anyone different and unique, 
the Arctic can definitely be part of that. And I think that is something that we are seeing a little bit in in Norway, kind of emphasizing what in particular Norway can contribute to international, whether it's politics or developments. On a more local level, neither or, or both a northern being northern and being Sami or indigenous was something that was historically looked down upon. And there's still a lot of history there that needs to be properly dealt with. But this has changed in recent years. And now it's something that is much more celebrated and people are proud of. And in particular with Sami languages is something that people are learning more and more. And there's a lot of interest in it and a lot of pride. And that's really fantastic to see. But of course, there's still a lot of work left to be done and something that the country really has to face up to. And that goes for, for Northern Norway too, in general. There is a, you know, a rich heritage there and, and all the resources, the fishery history is something that I think is being more and more celebrated today. Do you have any recommendations for how the Arctic can be sustainably managed politically in this era of environmental and indeed political change? Well, I think the main thing is that it's hugely important to continue those peaceful collaborations that we have today. I think the Arctic Council as a forum could be strengthened and it it is kind of getting more and more influence in the way that there's some binding agreements that have been negotiated within the Arctic Council among the states. Those developments are really great to see. So I think strengthening that positive collaboration, that, that peacefulness of the Arctic is the main thing I would really say. Part of that is that the Arctic governance arrangements have to be inclusive and open. And I think this is why I've been interested in identity, because as soon as you start talking about the Arctic or, or identity as something exclusive where you want to keep people out, it becomes really negative. Whereas if it's open and you're welcoming other viewpoints, other worldviews, really, other influences, then that could potentially be a really positive thing. In terms of of governing an Arctic in change, making sure you include all voices. So that means local people, indigenous people, but also other states from elsewhere. NGOs, that's another thing, environmental organizations or companies that want to, to create jobs or, you know, how do you foster a sustainable economy. That's the other question there. What sort of resources do we want to harvest and what do we actually want to leave in the ground perhaps? Allowing other voices to be heard and also I think including youth in this and there has been some really great development there where now suddenly those big policy kind of conferences that happen every year in the Arctic states are including more and more young people so even school students are sometimes invited to speak on how they envision their Arctic future. What does it mean for them? Because in the end, they're the ones who are going to live with with that change that we see happening. So yeah, in short, allowing allowing voices from a range of of worldviews to be heard. What are the most typical misconceptions about the Arctic? So I think a lot of people are really interested in the Arctic's environment, of course, and, and the changes we're seeing there. But I think with that Arctic imaginary comes also a stereotype of the Arctic as somewhat frozen in time, as this kind of wilderness that we want to preserve. And actually, I would really stress that the Arctic is actually a place full of life and a place that has always been dynamic and always 
changing. So I'm thinking in particular about people there and cultures there that protecting languages and traditions and history is hugely important. But, you know, people in the Arctic are also interested in types of development. Um, people have technology and all those things that I think are often missed out a little bit if we expect to find this very traditional space. And actually, what is so interesting about the Arctic is how it's connected to the rest of the world. It's not isolated at all, as I think the fact that it is an ocean is a, is a really good example of. It's through the Arctic that we are now seeing that oceanic connection between Europe and, and Asia. So it's a space of connection and interaction and movement and life, not these kind of empty, vast spaces or, or as the polar explorers used to think of it as a sort of terra incognita where they could go and map new spaces and, and conquer spaces. The other misconception about the Arctic is one that we see in media quite a lot, that there is as an impending scramble for, for the Arctic or Arctic territory. So the Arctic is, is not a global commons, it's governed by states and there are people living there. But like I was saying before, they are actually working together really quite well. So rather than saying that it's a kind of threatening geopolitical space where we're seeing conflict that is about to happen, it's, it's a space that is also presenting a range of positive things. And you know, with the, the challenges, there are also people who see things as opportunities. It just depends on who looks at a, a certain thing or a certain change, I think. The deadline for submission for the Young Geographer of the Year and the Rex Wolford Award is October 10th. For full information on guidelines and criteria, including how to submit, visit www.rgs.org forward slash YGOTY. This competition is kindly supported by Cotswold Outdoors, Ordnance Survey, Phillips, Esri UK and Stanford's. For more information on resources and CPD to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore ibgschools for the latest updates.